Exodus chapter 16, page 49 is, is where we're going to be. So 11 and a half years ago, uh, my wife, uh, Sydney, and I, we got married. And, and for the last uh, little over a decade, God has been teaching me a really simple kind of lesson over and over and over in the context of our marriage. And this isn't very profound, maybe for you, but it's like been very profound for me. The Lord has been teaching me in my marriage that it is easy to become a husband, but it is really difficult to become a good one. Like, it, it, is, it is easy to, like, stand up at the altar as a 22-year-old and to, like, make some promises that I didn't understand and to, to put a ring on her finger and to, to kiss her and to, and to go on a vacation. And it is, like, one thing to, to be a husband. I went from single to married instantly. But it is a lifelong endeavor of becoming a good one. It is this daily, daily commitment to to be quick to repent, to be fast to forgive, to, 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 to humble myself before the Lord and before my family and say, God, if I'm going to love Sydney and love our kids the way that you love me and the way that you love them, it's like, God, I need your help. And the Lord has been teaching me this over and over and over over the last decade is that it is one thing to become a husband. It's another thing to become a good one. And that one happens immediately and another happens over a season. It's a similar lesson that I've been learning for the last 15 or 16 years in, in my relationship with Jesus. When I was 16 years old, it was the first time in my life when I really came into this deep, like heart-level understanding of God's grace. And there are some of you that have shipwrecked your life and you've been in those moments where you know you need grace. And then you, you realize that the grace of God is the water that your dry desert heart needed. It is the water that makes you come to life. And I remember this moment of just revelation. I mean, not information, like revelation where God like peeled back the curtains and said, Dave, based upon who I am, not based upon who you are, you can be in my family. That's the grace of God. That God comes to us in our brokenness when we're at our very worst. And he says, when you don't think you're enough, Christ is enough. When, when, when you don't think you're strong enough, Christ's strength is sufficient. When you don't have righteousness that su- it suffices, Christ is enough. And there was this moment when I was 16 and I went, well, you're telling me that I, that I can go from being lost to being saved, from being far away to being found, from being like uh, damned in my wickedness to being saved in his grace. Like that can happen immediately. Like no 10-week course. No religious hoops to jump through, like God's grace and my faith. Like, you're literally telling me that. I remember when I learned that, I'm like, oh, God, what do, what do I need to do? I remember, like, calling my friends. I'm like, meet me up at the church tonight. I'm getting in the water. Like, there's this thing that happened when grace seized my heart. I became a follower of Jesus immediately. And I hope someone's illuminated that truth to you before. Maybe they have, and if they haven't, I hope it happens now. That you can be right with God immediately. But growing up into that gift of salvation takes a long time. And although you and Jesus can become friends quickly, you learning how to live like him and walk with him and follow him is so long and so slow. And just like it will take me to my dying breath to become a better husband, it takes us to our dying breath to become more faithful followers of Jesus. And this is important for us to understand because so often in the church, we've gotten these two things backwards. Theologians use these big words like salvation and sanctification. Salvation, this moment when you cross from life to death in Jesus. 
sanctification where you grow up into your maturity. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Christ has worked out, Christ has worked salvation into you. Now spend the rest of your life working out what he has worked in. That God has put this gift in you. He's given you this thing in Jesus. And now you and I get to partner together in community so that God can work out the riches of his grace, the riches of his love, the riches of his power for the sake of those that are around us. And here's what I want you to hear as we come into Exodus chapter 16 this morning. We've been in this book for the last five weeks. And when the story started, it started with the Israelites, a group of people who were in physical slavery. And God is going to swoop down into their slavery. He's going to raise up a guy named Moses to become their deliverer. And the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus is all about the people's salvation. It's about their deliverance. It's what we saw last week in kind of that climactic moment where the sea is parted, the people march through, and the water covers up the enemies. It was their salvation moment. On one side of the water, they were dead in slavery. On the other side, they were free in possibility. And the first 14 chapters are all about the way that God delivers. But from here on out in the story, it's not about how God gets them out of slavery. It's how God grows them up into their destiny. And I want you to hear that because I think it's the word for you. Is that God does not just want to get you out of slavery. He's got a destiny for you that he wants to grow you into. But in order for you to step into the promised lands of your future, there's some things that God has to do in your heart in the present. God knew that the biggest challenge for the Israelites was not getting them out of Egypt. It was getting Egypt out of them. That in the 400 years that they had been enslaved, they started thinking differently and worship differently and feeling differently. And so much of who God had made them to be had been lost in the midst of slavery. And so God says, I'm going to get you out of that. That's my goodness. That's my grace. That's my power. If you remember the story of them crossing the Red Sea last week, what was their faith like before the sea opened? Very small, very broken, not very good at all. In fact, the people were in the midst of rebelling against God, blaming God, assaulting God when he opens the water. Because God reminds them, he says, salvation is not based upon your goodness. It's based upon God's goodness. But your destiny is connected to whether or not you'll keep walking with God in such a way that he can grow you up. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that you are Christ's workmanship. You're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and he has prepared some amazing things in advance for you to do. And that there are a lot of Christians that leave their destiny on the table because they misunderstand this idea of salvation and sanctification. And I love it for the next several weeks as we keep tracking through this story. We're going to see this picture of what it looks like to grow up into God, to grow up into that which God has so freely offered us in Jesus. And so I want you to see this this morning. We're going to look at three really big stories. The story of God providing manna from heaven and water from the rock. And God uh, literally giving them the Ten Commandments. These like very famous stories if you grew up in church. And we're not going to look at them in every detail. I want you to see them in their proper place amidst the whole narrative of the Bible. And I want you to understand what it is that they're doing and how they point to Jesus and what God is calling you into. But as we think about this, we're going to look at these stories through the lens of how God is trying to grow the people into the thing he's just given them. You see, I think it's interesting that God gave the people the Ten Commandments after they crossed the Red Sea and not before. 
Had God given them the Ten Commandments before he opened up the Red Sea, they would have thought that he opened up the sea because they kept the, they kept the rules. But God says, I'll open the sea and then I'll teach you how to live. I'll give you the gift and then I'll grow you into it. Does that make sense? And so this morning, this picture that we're going to look at, it's not a formula, but it's a framework. And there's a difference between a formula and a framework. A formula says, this is how things always work. A framework says, this is how things often work. And this picture in the book of Exodus is not a formula of how God always works, but it's a framework of how he often works. And how he often works gives us understandings of how he's currently working. And I believe that many of us are finding ourselves in the growing up places of God. And I hope these stories will kind of give you a picture of that. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 1. If you take notes, I want, I want you to notice how the Lord is going to use three unlikely things. He's going to bring these three things together for the purpose of maturing and growing the people into this salvation that he's just given them. And the first one you're going to see here in verse 1 through 3, look at this, Exodus chapter 16. It says, the whole Israelite community, they set out from Elam and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. So those of you that like to know the timeline, there's been about 45 days since the Passover. So about a month and a half, God's done some incredible things. And I want you to see how short term their spiritual memory is. 45 days. Verse 2. It says, in the desert, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, because there in Egypt we sat around pots of meat, we ate all the food that we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And so if you take notes, I want you to notice this first thing that the Lord is going to use to mature them, and it's going to be this unexpected place. I want you to notice how God is going to use an unexpected place to grow them up into this gift that he has just given them. And this unexpected place is what you see in verse 2 where it says, and suddenly the whole community found themselves in the desert. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at a great movie or been at a great play and there's that moment where the, the scene changes or the set changes, and that's a significant moment in any story, isn't it? And I want you to recognize this because we can just kind of blow by it in the Bible, but all of a sudden the set has changed. And from here on out in the book of Exodus, the set by which the story is going to unfold in will be in the desert. And in every way imaginable, the desert was the opposite of where they had just come from. Egypt, during the time that the story unfolded, it was the height of human civilization. It was the height of human technology and innovation. It was the place where everyone wanted to be. It was the place of comfort. It was the place of progression. It was the place of excess. Egypt was the place where everyone wanted to be. Now, have in mind that the people had been on the bottom rung of the society in Egypt. But no less, Egypt was a place of great predictability. But all of a sudden, they find themselves in the desert, which literally, in every way, is the opposite of Egypt. Egypt was organized. It was powerful. It was full of opportunity. The desert was wild and untamable and unpredictable and uncertain. And the Lord begins to expose this thing in the people's heart. I want you to see this. He begins to reveal 
the shallowness of their understanding of him, the shallowness of their, their walk with him, as soon as they find themselves in this unexpected place, God is going to bring to this reality what's going on in the heart. And here's what you're going to see. Verse 3, it says, the people began to grumble against the Lord and against Moses. And you're going to see in their hearts that so often we're more comfortable with the predictable reality of our spiritual slavery than we are with the unpredictable promises of God's future for us. And there are times if we have to choose between being slaves in Egypt or being free in the wilderness with the uncertainty of God. Have you ever had those moments where you choose the slavery you just came from? Think about a woman that Sydney and I were friends with that we journeyed with for several years. She found herself in the midst of a very abusive, physically abusive relationship. And remember, she came and shared a story and all these things were going on and we we're trying to encourage her to get out of the abuse, to, to leave the abuse. And she gets out of the abuse and she suddenly finds herself in a new city, in a new place, in a new community, new rules. And you know what was amazing to me? Was how often we had to sit down and talk her into not going back to that which she just came from. Why? Because the predictability of her slavery at times was more comfortable than the unpredictability of the future that God was laying out before her. And there's this moment where the people of God, they find themselves in this unexpected place and God is revealing all of these things about their heart. But this is the question I kept asking myself all week. I said, how is it that they got in this desert place? You know, did they get in the desert because of their rebellion? Did they get in the desert because of their sin? Did they get in the desert because they didn't, because they didn't obey the Lord? No. They were in the desert because God had led them there. They were in the desert under the gracious, powerful foresight and knowledge and understanding of God himself. Now, if you keep reading the story, they're going to stay in the desert about 40 years longer than God had intended. But they got there because God invited them in. Have you ever been in one of those moments where in an attempt to clean up a mess, you actually made more messes that were worse than the, the mess you started out with? So I think about, you know, I used to have this Jeep it's this awesome old Jeep Wrangler, rest in peace. She passed away a few years ago, and it's been difficult on me. Um, as you can tell, I speak about her in the first person, you know, as though she was alive. But I loved this Jeep, and she would break down on me all the time. And I'm not very good with cars, and so I bought this book on how to fix Jeeps, because even though I wasn't good on uh, working on cars, I'm even poorer, you know. So it's like, I, I've, I've got to figure out how to fix this Jeep. And so I would get in, and I would start working on the Jeep, and here's what I found so often. In an attempt to fix that which was broken, I just ended up breaking everything else. I'd take things apart, and I couldn't figure out how to get them back together, and I have this friend, Lee, who goes to the nine o'clock here. I'd always end up calling Lee. I'm like, hey, man, I'm in a mess. I need you to come over and clean this up. And I go, have you ever been in one of those moments where in an attempt to clean up one mess, you made something even worse? Here's the great news. God is not like you. And God is, is not like me. Like, like God was not trying to solve the problem of their slavery only to find himself with a bigger problem of them being in the desert. It wasn't like God was sitting around going, hey, we've got to get you out of slavery. We've got to get you out of Egypt. And then he got him out there and he's like, oh man, what are we going to do? There's no food in the desert. There's no water in the desert. Holy Spirit, Jesus, what are we going to do? Like God's not having a conversation with them. Why? Because he wasn't surprised. The people found themselves in an unexpected place under the leadership of God. It'd be the desert where God would lead Israel. It'd be the desert where God would lead Jesus after his baptism. 
And I believe it's the desert where the Lord keeps leading us. And I want you to notice this. God is not just trying to get them out. He's trying to grow them up. And he's going to begin growing them up in this very unexpected place. But the second thing I want you to notice as we keep reading in chapter 16. It's not just that God uses this unexpected place. It's that God will start using some unconventional means of provision. He's going to start providing for them in in some ways that shattered their understanding of who he was. That shattered their understanding of what it meant to be alive and what it meant to be human. And it's going to be this unconventional provision that is going to start launching them into what it is that God had made for them. Jump down to verse 4. I want you to see this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is in the midst of their grumbling. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Now, some of you have been in church too long because you just read that sentence and you don't think anything about it. But how amazing is this? God is like, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. I love Mexican food, so maybe it's tortillas. I don't know what it was, but it's like... The Lord's like, I know your hunger, and I'm going to meet the need in an unbelievable way. In an unbelievable way. Listen to this. Verse verse 4. He says, in this way, I will test the people to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that's to be twice as much so they can still enjoy the Sabbath. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against him. There's this moment where the Lord is trying to grow them up and he's not just growing them up by bringing them into an unexpected place. He's growing them up by bringing them face to face with his unconventional provision. And it's so important, I want you to hear me. If you've tuned me out, please come back to me. You've got to hear this. The Lord knew that unless he reworked their understanding of provision, they would never be able to move into the future that he had for them. Unless he reworked their understanding of who it was that was their provider, who it was that was their caretaker, who it was that was their father, until the Lord rewired their understanding of provision, they could never have the freedom to move into the things that God had in store for them in the future. They'd spend their whole life tethered to their old ways. As long as they thought their provision was connected to the Pharaoh, as long as they thought their provision was connected to their boss or to their hard work or to their performance, they'd never have the freedom to walk all the way into the things that God had in store for them. And there's this moment where God looks at him and he says, I'm going to teach you this. And if you know the way the story unfolds, he gives them bread from heaven. He gives them water from the rock, these unconventional provision in unexpected places. And he does it day by day by day by day because the provision of the Lord is not an event. It's a reality. And as long as the provision of the Lord feels like an event, you'll never walk into the new reality. And so the Lord says, I've got to rework the way you think about my provision He says, the way that I'm going to do that is in the unexpected place with the unconventional provision of bread and of water and of meat in some amazing ways. Now, I want you to think about this because on a Sunday morning in church, it sounds fun to think about, wow, God provides for us in unconventional ways. But the unconventional provision of the Lord often feels very painful when we first start stepping into it. Because typically before the Lord will fill us up, he will cut us off. And there's this thing in you that's going, Lord, what is going on? Lord, like, why would you cut us off from the provision if you just want to turn around and give it to us? It's what Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 4 through 6 speak of. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, when you were in the wilderness for 40 years, he said, I made you hungry. Listen to this. He said, I made you hungry so that I could in turn feed you with bread from heaven. This is my favorite part. So that you could know something your ancestors never knew. He says, there are ways of you knowing God that your parents haven't known and your grandparents haven't known and the generations before you haven't known. He says, but until... Until I cut you off from the old source in Egypt, until I cut you off from what feels like the strength of your old hands, you, you won't be able to move into what it is that God has for you. It's unconventional provision. I remember when I was a kid, behind our house in the woods, there was this little creek that me and one of my best friends, a guy named Stephen, we used to play in every single week together. And we'd, we'd go play in this creek. One summer it was particularly dry. We'd go back and the creek dried up and we were heartbroken. And so uh, we for whatever reason, decided, let's just walk down the creek bed. And felt like we walked forever, like an hour. You know, we were in sixth grade. It was probably 10 minutes. I don't know how far we walked. But we, we walked down this creek bed that we used to play in that had dried up. And all of a sudden, as we walked down the creek bed, we find ourselves standing at the edge of a river that used to feed it. This river is so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much better for swimming and playing. You know, I'm like, man, had the small little creek dried up, we would have never gone looking for the river. Had the small little creek always been there, we would have never gone looking for the deeper pleasures. It's what my kids experience. Those of you that have small kids, you know that there is this really challenging hour between the end of their afternoon nap and the beginning of dinner every night where they, they wake up from nap and the kids are starving. And my middle son, Jack, in particular, he's four years old, he'll come downstairs and he is like possessed. He's looking for food. He doesn't care where he's gonna find it. He's so angry, he's so hungry. He's hangry, as we call it in our house. So hungry that he gets mad. And he comes in and, hey, can I have a snack? And so we'll get him a little bowl and we'll fill it up with Cheerios. And he'll just devour the Cheerios. And then he'll come back for more and we'll give him just a little bit more. And then he'll come back for more and I'm like, buddy, I gotta cut you off because your mom is like making a really great meal right now and if you fill up on Cheerios, no matter what they tell you on the box, those things aren't gonna grow you up into who you're supposed to be. So I can't keep giving you the snack, otherwise you're not gonna come to the feast. And there's that moment where I cut him off and you would think that I'm Hitler. He thinks I'm the worst guy on earth. He's like, God, why'd you give me this father? Like, he took my snacks away, he took my Cheerios away. He's like pleading, ripping his shirt and sackcloth and ashes on the head and mourning before God for 40 days. And he's like, what's wrong? And I go, why? From my perspective, from my perspective, I know that what he needs is the feast and what he'll settle for is the Cheerios. What you need is the feast. And the Lord knows that left by our own devices, we'll settle for the Cheerios. And he wants to not just get them out of Egypt. He wants to get Egypt out of them. And he's going to get Egypt out of them by growing them up into their destiny. He brings them into this unexpected place. He begins to provide for them in these unconventional ways. And then over in Exodus chapter 19, you can flip over there really quick. Exodus chapter 19, just a couple of pages over. I want you to see this. Third thing is he's going to give them these uncompromising parameters. Uncompromising parameters. I want you to see this. Exodus 19, verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Huge verse right here, so important, verse 5. He says, Now if you obey me and fully keep my command, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. 
And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are supposed to speak to the people. I want to come back to this, two of the most important words that will ever come out of the mouth of God. You need to pay attention. Anytime you hear the Lord use these two words that he uses in verse 5, it's the word if and the word then. It's the word if and the word then. And the Lord is going to be very clear. He's getting ready to give them the Ten Commandments. He's getting ready to give them this new covenantal law. But before he does that, I want you to hear what he says, verse 5. He says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, this is so important. Some of you grew up in very legalistic religious churches. Let me just speak something to you specifically for a second. If you grew up in legalism, there's this tendency to confuse legalism and obedience. And we begin to hear any language of obedience and we just confuse it with legalism. But obedience and legalism are not the same thing. Legalism says this. Legalism says, you keep the rules, you obey God so that he accepts you. Here's what the gospel of Jesus declares. You are loved and you are accepted. And because you're loved and accepted, you're gonna wanna keep, you're gonna wanna keep the covenant. Legalism says, obey, so you'll be loved. The gospel says, you are loved, and now we get to obey. But often, in our attempt to throw off the constraints of legalism, we actually throw away this very important promise that God makes over and over and over. Several months ago, my wife and I, we were studying the Word of God together, and he just began speaking into our hearts. He gave us a really clear phrase. He said, Dave, my love for you is unconditional, but my blessings for you are not. My love is unconditional, but my blessings are not. And I thought, Lord, what do you mean by that? I started searching, and, and uh, he began teaching me this throughout the scriptures and teaching me this in my own life. You know, I've got three boys, and my love for those boys is unconditional. There's nothing those boys can do to be cut off from their father or their mother's love. But there are a lot of things my boys can do to be cut off from my blessing. That if they're walking in rebellion, if they're not doing what I've asked them to do, I'm not going to give them ice cream. I'm not going to let them stay up late. We're not going to do extra fun things. Because if I bless them in their rebellion, where will they choose to stay? In the rebellion. And the Lord says, I have raised you up. He says, I didn't just want to get you out of Egypt. He says, I'm bringing you out of Egypt because there's this destiny for you. He says, I want you to be a sacred, holy nation for all the people of the earth to see how great God is in your life. He says, but in order for you to enjoy the gift of being God's treasured people amongst the nations, you have to walk in obedience. For 400 years, the people had been slaves in Egypt. And as slaves, they began thinking and feeling and responding as though they were somebody else's property. That's what a slave is. It's someone's property. And the Lord looks at them in Exodus 20 and he says, no longer do I want you to view yourself as Egypt's property. You're going to be my chosen people. But in order for you to go from being property to people, you've got to live within some holy parameters. And I want you to notice this. The Lord says, these are uncompromising parameters. We live in a culture, we live in a day and age. We love dialogue and we love discussion. We love to to go back and forth and to, to really wrestle with, okay, I wonder what that means. Here's what you think, here's what I think, here's how I feel, here's how you feel. And to come to these places of great spiritual compromise. Our American hearts are not very comfortable with the biblical God. (laughs) Because the biblical God doesn't come to 
his people in Exodus 19 with a few suggestions about how they should live now. He comes to them with this uncompromising set of parameters and he says, this is what I want your life to be like. And if you live inside of these parameters, you experience blessing. You can go all the way through the Ten Commandments. I just, I love the first one. He says, I'm the Lord your God and you should have no other gods before me, period. Not up for discussion, not up for debate. He says, and if you live within the parameters of that reality, what you'll experience is blessing. See, God wasn't trying to tie them down. He's trying to free them up. He's trying to help them learn how to be human again, how to flourish as his people in the, word, but in the world, but he had to retrain the way that they viewed the word. And so Moses comes down with the 10 commandments. And it wasn't a random set of rules. It was like the fence post around their heart so they could flourish and live in the world the way that God had made them to live. In our old house where Sydney and I used to live, we had this great backyard, great fence around it. And the irony of our backyard was that our kids always wanted to be in the front because in the front, in their minds, there was freedom. In the front, there was no fence. They could go as far as they wanted to go. But the difference was in the front yard, we had to be outside with them the whole time because they'd be in the street, they'd get themselves killed. And so although they felt as though they were more free, what they experienced was a far shorter leash. But something amazing would happen. We put them in the backyard and they'd play and they'd run and they'd be out there for hours and Sydney and I didn't even have to be out there. They, they experienced the freedom. And I love this. The Lord is saying, I don't just want to get you out of slavery. I want to grow you into your destiny. He says, and in order for you to experience what you're made for, you've got to live and breathe and walk and obey the word of God. It's the way it is. No matter what anyone else is saying around you. And you see this collision in Exodus 16 through 20. This unexpected place, the desert. This unconventional provision, the bread and water from heaven. And this uncompromising set of parameters in the Ten Commandments. And the Lord is going to begin using these things together in conjunction to grow the people into the very thing that he'd made them for. And as I've been wrestling with this all week, I'm like, okay, Lord, but what's the word for our people? Like, what's the word for this community? Why, why does this matter so much? And there's all these levels that we could talk about. You could go home today and you could think about this on a personal level and you could sit before the Lord and you could ask him this question, God, where are you trying to grow me up in my faith? And that'd be a really important question to ask and to pray through and to wrestle with. But I'm not gonna stay on the personal application of this this morning. You can do that on your own. I want us to think about the communal application of what's unfolding here. We live in like such a weird time right now where I think the church in so many ways we have found ourselves in an unexpected place in our culture. And for a, lot, we, we, for a lot of us, we're going, okay, man, the future seems wild and untamable and unpredictable, Lord. What is it that you're doing? And if you don't understand what the Lord is doing, it may feel like punishment. But I'd argue that the Lord is not punishing his church right now. That the Lord is pruning his church. And that because he's a great father that knows us and loves us, he is growing us into the destiny that he set before us. But in order for us to get there, it's gonna require us traversing some unexpected ground, of us depending on him in some unconventional ways, and of us deciding whether or not we will live in the context of his uncompromising parameters. We live in a culture right now where everything feels up for grabs, and you're gonna to try to read through the lines right here. I'm not making a bunch of statements here. I'm just telling you what's going on in my heart. We just live in a culture where everything feels up for grabs. And I think the Lord is testing his church right now. 
And I think the Lord is trying to decide whether or not we can be a church trusted with his glory. Whether or not we can be a church trusted with the, the destiny that he's laid out to be a blessing to the nations. <laughs> I've got to do something in you before I can do something amazing through you. And there's all this conversation that I, that I hear as I talk to Christians. And this is the buzzword that I keep hearing. People going, man, the church just isn't relevant anymore. Have you heard that before? The way the church feels, the way the church acts, it's not relevant anymore. The church isn't relevant. The church is not what it used to be. And please hear me clearly. Relevance is important, but it's secondary. I don't think God's looking for a relevant church. I think God is looking for a holy church. God came to the people of Israel and he didn't say, I want to bless the world through you, but first things first, I need you to be relevant. No, he said, first things first, if you want to be a blessing to the world, I need you to be holy. I need you to be different than the other nations. I can't have you enslaved to the same ways of thinking and living that they are. Because if you're enslaved to the way that people at your work and people on your campus and people in your neighborhood are, your life will be like a mirage. It won't be a blessing. The only reason the people around you believe that God has actually gotten you out of Egypt is because you go through the long, hard, slow work of letting him grow you up in the desert places. And I don't think the Lord is looking for a relevant church. I think he's looking for a church to be made holy in Jesus. And here's just my commitment to you. I'm not saying this as a pastor, a leader, speaker, whatever it is that you want to call me. I'm just saying this like man to man, man to woman, friend to friend. As for me and my house, no matter what happens in the culture, no matter what happens in November, no matter what the popular opinion is, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for, yeah, as for me and my house, we're gonna go into the unexpected places. We're gonna trust that God provides even when it's ways that we didn't want him to. And we're going to say, Lord, we will allow the parameters of your word to hem us in. And we're not going to think about politics and life and marriage and sexuality and finances and the poor and gender and race. We're not going to think about those things the way that we used to think about those things in Egypt. You've set us free from that. Now grow us up, Lord. Do something, Lord. But in order for us to do it, we have to keep walking with Jesus. There is no cruise control between the Red Sea and the Promised Land. There's no such thing as praying the prayer, getting in the water, and cruising to your death. The Lord says, I want to grow you up because I love you, and there's a destiny for you to be had if you walk in obedience. We'll end here. I love Jesus. I love what he says in John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. He's looking out at the crowd. He says, listen, he says, I'm your bread from heaven. He says, I'm your water from the rock. He says, I'm your righteousness. He says, I'm your hope. I'm your strength. What I started in you, I will complete in you. The, the good work of your salvation is something that I'll bring to completion in you. He says, but you've got to learn to trust me. And I believe that the Lord in his grace and in his power is inviting our church into the desert spaces for a season. And unless you understand the framework by which God has so often worked, you're gonna miss what it is that I think he's getting ready to do. And if you're not careful, you'll turn back. Because turning back feels safe. Turning back feels predictable. Turning back feels comfortable. But turning back is death. God's got more. Let's stand. I'll pray over us. Lord, I love you. 
and I love these people. Father, I want to pray something that only comes by your hand and by your might. This will only literally happen, Lord, if you do this. But Lord, I pray that every person that is hearing my voice right now, that Lord, you would impart a deep hunger for holiness. That God, we would long to be like you. That we would long to be with you. And that God, I know where there is a hunger for holiness, there are feet that are willing to run up the dry beds of our spiritual deserts to find the river. God, would you cut us off from our lesser provisions so we can find the source of all provision. Lord, would you hem us in with the power of your word. I was reading this morning in Psalm, I think Psalm 18, I can't remember exactly, somewhere in Psalm, Psalm 18, I believe, where you say that, Lord, when we walk in your word, you protect our hearts before you. God, would you do that? Would you create a hunger in us for holiness? And Lord, would we come to satisfy that hunger in Jesus alone? Uh, Jesus, I love what you say in John 6. Eat this bread, drink this cup. But what you really said was eat my flesh, drink my blood. In other words, take me in. He says, I am the bread from heaven that satisfies the soul. God, as we come to the communion tables, we come in prayers, we come in worship, as we come into this week, Lord, Lord, would you make us hungry for you, and then would you satisfy it in you alone? It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks. Amen.